Now, something we said recently is that we famously have not had any press. None. We were talking about this just a couple, just a mere couple episodes ago, actually. Nary the day do you see the Truanon name in print. The only time we've seen it was when we were called anti-Semitic. Anti-Semitic by the Daily Beast. Yeah. Thank you very much, Daily Beast, for calling us anti-Semitic in your newspaper. Yes. (laughs) It's not a newspaper. It's just like a blog. In your blog Web's, that you web do. blog. Thank you, for, thank you for having one of your bloggers call us anti-Semitic. <laughs> and that was a while ago. It was like th- that, that was, was like j- literally three, three years ago. Three years ago. Yeah. And they said that Matt Christman was the host of the show. That, they did also say it. It was clear a guy listened to the fir- Alexander Reed Ross, who is— Which is crazy because we actually did an episode where we called him out by name— Yes. Like six episodes later. For what he did. But <laughs> he yeah, he's one of those is. bozo, like, the brown boys kind of guys. Yeah. Uh, apparently didn't like the fact that uh, we called uh, rich people blood blood suckers, Dracula-style vampires. Mm. Not George Soros-style vampires. Yeah. We didn't say anything about anyone like that. It's not like they're getting the blood from a bris, you know what I'm saying? It's from the anyway, next. we have a big announcement because... Just about a week or so, and some change ago, we had our second our, s- our second mention in the papers. There we go, and this one in a real paper, a real live, legit paper. What an issue of which? Not this one, but another issue. I have framed in my office. You do, yes. Uh, and the thing that wounds me so much about this, right? The so, Daily Beast, the Daily Whatever, the Daily yeah, Daily bitch. Planet. Who yeah, cares? Okay. Who are you? The Gaily Beast uh, is the Gaily Least. Here, the New York Post. Now this is real. Imagine this: you've been married to a woman for fifty years, and you love her. Mm. You you love her so much. You okay. guys still love each other. You think. You think you you think so. You tell your friends funny things she says. You sometimes send your friends articles about Hunter Biden that she has written in her on her body, on her flesh and pen. And and pen, I meant to say, not pin. Uh and then all of a sudden one day you wake up and there's a knife in your back and it's bared to the hilt. Oh my god. San Fran socialists killed historic anchor brewing critics say in the New York Post, July fifteenth, two thousand and twenty-three. Now, if anyone has listened to our podcast for more than three episodes, mm-hmm. they'd know that your name is going to be all over this story. Mm-hmm. And in fact, it is. But not just your name, also Truanon's. Truanon's name. <laughs> we got mentioned in the New York Post. We did. Which is crazy because we covered the Ghislaine trial, which the New York Post did, quite extensively. Nothing. Right at the same time. We were right there with them. Nothing. They don't care for us. Nothing. They don't care for us when we're in the same room as them. I I was sketching everybody in there like a crazy man. I know. Painting pictures of themselves. I think we should probably. I mean, the 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 article is about Sapporo closing Anchor Brewing Company, where I used to work and where I was part of a, a union a successful unionization campaign. And it seems to revolve around the criticism of one Richie Greenberg. Yeah, who is that? Richie Greenberg is the corpulent uh, and failed and bald 
a perennial mayoral candidate. Every city's got them. Every yeah. city's got Those three some... attributes, by the way, unrelated, unless maybe they are. So the only difference between this guy and like one of them pigs that searches for roots or truffles is that those pigs actually get what they want after a while. Mm. This pig is just <laughs> all through San Francisco and never gets a fucking thing. Yeah, which he is just... pat on the back from their friendly farmer owner. Not going to say that he doesn't get truffles uh, as his massive girth would show, uh, but I had called him fat and bald on the internet, or at least our intern, uh, I whacked the whip and had the chewing on Twitter account, called him fat and bald for... Is for that Marcos, or...? Marco, well, Marcos unfortunately died Mehmet? from lashings. This is, well, Mem, Mark, Mark, this is the colonel found a new guy for us. Okay. Yeah. What's his name? We don't have him. We just call him kind of boy, whatever, dog sometimes, oh. it. We sometimes, and most of the time, I just snap without okay. saying a name or a pronoun. It's a or nonverbal like situation. Nonverbal, yeah. Well, he's verbal, but blah, 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 blah. Anyways, I had him call Richie Greenberg fat and bald. Okay. And Richie Greenberg ran to his little fucking friends, the, the New York, the lying New York Post, to talk shit about me. Yeah, this is, I mean, the article is very long for the New York Post. Um, and really goes through, there's a great little picture of you with Bernie Sanders here, which is very cute. I always like this. It's you and the rest of a group of workers from Anchor Brewing Company back in San Francisco. When was this? This was in, this I remember was in, when uh, you. This was, it must have been 2019 because Bernie was yeah, actually interviewing at ILWU for an endorsement. Yeah, I remember. Primary. That was so cute. Um, but the whole the whole story is about how Anchor, which... I think some of our listeners will know, but we we did an episode sort of about Anchor uh, a couple episodes ago, and it hadn't yet shut down, but Anchor has been shut down by its parent company, Sapporo. Eh, evil mm-hmm. Sapporo. Mm-hmm. That's not racial. Oppenheimer. Um, industry. Oppenheimer. <laughs> getting back. They're getting back at us. Um, and the New York Post seems to, along with Mr. Richie Greenberg, blame the union for this loss. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it, the, the the piece goes further to not just blame the union, but let's say one specific union member. And here it is. But pay and working conditions were secondary to union organizer Brace Belden. Look at you in the papers. Uh, a self-proclaimed Marxist-Leninist. Hmm. Citation. Missing they're a, missing a little. Missing a hyphen and another yeah, M word there. Yeah, there's but, a little. Okay. Using another modifier. And DSA member, again, is that current? I'm not sure. Who recruited his comrades to canvas for the Union Drive. Quote, we didn't just dedicate ourselves to this project for the sole reason of starting a union. Belden crowed. Crowed? Talk about anti-Semitism. Crowed? I've never crowed in my life. Uh, campaigns spearheaded by socialist labor organizers give us a foundation for a labor movement ready to take on the power of capital. So that well, that's from an article I wrote in 2019 with um, my old, long old old time friend Brennan Kierens, who's a IATSE uh, electrician, and fucking uh, Evan McLaughlin, who uh, McLaughlin mm. uh, McLaughlin, uh, who's uh, lead organizer for LWU Northern California. So I don't even know if I wrote that. Interesting. But you're taking credit. I'll take credit in the context of this. Okay. Yes, of them talking shit. Um, there's another quote where basically this woman in, or an investor, I don't even know who this is, Carol Roth. Do you mm-hmm. know who this is? She basically calls you a socialist grifter. Well, 
I want to take issue and umbrage with the G word there. Please, umbrage away. I love when you umbe. A lot of people call podcasters grifters. Now, here's the deal. It's a very simple economic setup. $5 a month and you get some amount of episodes. Now, if I told you you get 40 episodes a month and I gave you four, that would be a grift. Now, if I said, if you listen to these episodes, you'll become smarter or more well-informed, that would be a grift. If I told you if you listen to these episodes, you know how to crow like the best of them, caca, that would be a grift. I don't tell you that. None of them I hear a true and on would give you any kind of crazy fucking uh, promises such as that. We tell you exactly what you're getting. She says, the union's triumph turned Belden, who had previously won national attention for an ill-starred, ill-starred, ill-starred stint fighting the Syrian civil war. I love, I gotta say, I'm sorry. The Post, with its alliteration, is just- Unbeatable. Unreal. I mean, best in the biz. Into a lefty darling. He scored a visit from Bernie Sanders. I didn't score a visit. Well, I went, went to Van S because the fucking guy from the union texted me dur- with my coworkers during the 2020 presidential campaign, then parlayed his heightened profile to a top-ranked pro- a podcast. Citation needed, lady. Uh, that, that, those two things just happened concurrently. But they didn't, mm. it wasn't like we were like, we got attention because of the anchor thing. Truanon, which now earns him... More than $1.2 million a year from Patreon subscribers alone. And that is why I would like to announce my retirement right here <laughs> and right now. Now, the woman who wrote this article is herself a rather, uh, let's say, uh, sonic after a couple impregnations-style-bodied woman with an equally ugly family. And you better know that I've looked at all of them. Lady Mary Kay Lynch, I have looked at your son's YouTube channel. I have downvoted every (laughs) single fucking video on there. And I gotta tell you this! He is in his, what, 30s? God, I hope so, considering how he looks. You have an ugly son. You have an ugly son, and I want to tell you this. Your son is a failure. Your son is a failure. Unlike you, who somehow got off your CPAP machine and waddled your ass to fucking Manhattan into the New York Post offices, your son has never made it off of Staten Island. And he never will. You're a loser, Mary Kay Lynch. Your husband's a loser with his fucked up weird last name that I noticed that you didn't take because you don't love him because it's a sexless marriage. And your son... Your son, who, you know what, I'm going to say, your gay son. Your gay son will never make it off of Staten Island. But you know who might make it to Staten Island one day? Considering somebody doesn't use those privacy things that you can get your address off the internet, is me. And that, ladies and gentlemen, is called crowing. My other favorite part of this piece, by the way, I got to just sneak this in there, is that it's just you compared to basically Dylan Mulvaney. You yeah. two are the cult are are rocking me and Dylan the uh, culture war within the brewery industry. <laughs> me and Dylan Mulvaney are going to start a fucking a kind of like a beer super group. Here. Can I tell you my thing about Dylan Mulvaney? What about Dylan Mulvaney? The name's too close to Dylan McDermott and Dermot Mulroney, which is the famous like 
that's a mouthful. I don't know who either are those real people. Who are those people? Is it the same person, Bruce? Do you know? What's who? the difference? Who's what's the difference between Dermot Mulroney and Dylan McDermott? Am I saying those names correctly? I I, I don't know who those names are referring. No to. No one knows. Dermot Dylan, Dylan Mulvaney. You're Dermot Mulroney. Dylan McDermott. Dermot sounds Say it three like three times fast. Dylan McDermott. Dylan Mulvaney. Dermot yep, Mulvaney. Can't do it. Uh, my thing is, sounds too close to Mick Mulvaney. That's Which another Mick one. Mulvaney is a crazy name because it sounds like that would be an off-brand, like the Safeway, you know, Mucinex, which I'm very familiar with intimately at this point. Mm. The Mucinex man? Yeah, hate him. You, well... I don't like him. Eh. But would you? I think he's a bit aggressive. You think he's a bit aggressive, but no. you'd like him if he was a little more tender and sensual. No, no. Anyways, the Mucinex guy, if there was like a Safeway off-brand version of Mucinex, which there is, and that Safeway off-brand version of Mucinex had a character. character, it would be like a Mick Mulvaney. Interesting. So Dylan Mulvaney, the na- the last name's too similar to that. Mm. Um, just go by Dylan. Like, no last name, sort of like a share situation. Interesting. Because I think Bob Dylan's weak enough now that, that you, you could, could take do it. the singular Dylan I think it'd Dylan be very difficult to position yourself as a performer in any capacity with the just, I'm Dylan. Dylan. <laughs> Dylan. But I think you could because what you got to do is you, or a mix. This is my new record, D- Dylan. Dylan. Keith? I think you could do that. I think that now— Those, That's different. Dylan is different. Dylan is different because Dylan's weak now. Dylan was arrested for being a vagrant in, like, 2014 outside of one yeah. of his own concerts. But the, the name's not weak. The man uh, is. The man is weak. I could— Brittle bones. Fuck Dylan up in a—even in my He's weakened like a bird. state. He's about to collapse. A bird. Hollow. Easily. And I could smash him like I, you yeah. see me kick those pigeons on the way here. Yeah. Which don't— Put that video. The out. frailest bones. I got scared and I lashed out. And At a pigeon? Yeah, and I tackled it. Yeah. And just. Hello, everyone. Hello. My name is Liz. My name is Mick Mulvaney. And we are joined here today by producer Young Chomsky. The podcast is called. It's called Turn On. Hello, everyone. Hello. And you know what? Great. I don't know why I did that. I, I already opened the there? can. I didn't even see. We went to the store together, and I was like so in the zone mm-hmm. that I didn't even see and you know clock your purchases. I'm freaking drinking a uh, freaking drinking pure green uh, cold pressed juice. Now I don't usually drink cold pressed juices because I did get a barf mm-hmm. experience from one like 15 years ago when they what first about came when out. We were with Mo- a moon juice, you really did not feel well. Literally, yes, barfed because of that yeah. carrot juice. Yes, and which you also couldn't finish. Um, it is too much. But uh, but because of my, uh, we're now entering day ten of me being sick. Well, we know that you have a sinus infection. I do have a sinus infection. So now. I told Brace that he had to go to the doctor to get mm. a real course of antibiotics, not yeah. just a Z pack, which is not going to do it if you got a real sinus infection. Uh-huh. And he did, but you got some serious things. Which got some seri- which I got to tell you, these ones playing playing. Uh, xylophone on my guts yeah. here. It makes me feel crazy. Yeah, you gotta they take also a probiotic me, with those. Uh, well, I'm gonna tell you guys, I'm gonna be the, in the interest of being honest with well, you guys. Do you remember last time I got pneumonia? When very I got pneumonia, well. I don't have pneumonia right now. When I had <laughs> pneumonia in February. Remember my health problems due to uh, some of the medication that they gave me? Now they gave me a pill to prevent those. I really don't remember what you're talking about. But I'm happy that you seem to be taking care of the it. The guy said, we mostly give these to women, is what he told me. Oh, he's like, you for want- your mood swings? He's, we mostly give this to women, is what he told me. The ladies will know what... I finally get to say that. The ladies will know what I'm talking about. We mostly give this to women. Yeah, now I know what you're talking about. Yeah. 
That's very funny. He gave me a motherfucking dog. Because I was like, I insist. You know what, though? You I know insist. what? I'm happy that you are advocating for yourself because that is really important and difficult to do in the American health industry. Men can get yeast infections. Men can get yeast infections. And I'm tired of people pretending that that's something or even until they're 33 thinking that's something that only women can get. And then when it really hurts for your dick to pee, you're like, what the fuck? Do I have an STD? How long is something dormant in me? Holy shit. And you freak out. And then you Google a bunch of stuff and you throw up because you're so anxious. And then you realize it is because of the antibiotics. And there is a simple pill that you can take in just one pill and then it gets rid of it that day. Speaking of yeast, we have an episode today. About beer. We're talking, <laughs> we're talking beer. And speaking of magical cure silver bullets, Oof. we're talking about Coors. Yeah. This will be fun. It, we talked about the Bush family. Well, that Bush family. And then the other Bush family. But we have not talked about the Coors uh, conglomerate, I guess. No. This is a fucked up, crazy family. Yeah, and I, I think I think in I, I feel like people might have some parts of the history. Yeah. You know, whether it's the boycott, whether it's some of the right wing stuff, whether it's just the name Adolf being you know, it's still in the Showing company up, name. Con- and, over and over again. And I get it. You know, common name until Well until And then you'd think you'd move away from it. But that's when the right wing stuff comes in. The right wing stuff comes in and we're talking we've got Ukrainian Nazis in here. Mm. We've got uh, Jerry Falwell in sure. here. We've got Elvira. Ronnie. Oh, Ronnie Reagan. Ronnie Reagan and his uh, Australian. Cocaine. God, Ronald Reagan's. Nancy Reagan would have the craziest podcast if she was alive today. Oh, my God. It, that Podcasting could have saved her, mm. I think. Yeah. Um, we're talking all that. We're talking a little bit about Anchor, and we are meeting with Dave Infante right now. Ladies and gentlemen, this is the moment you've all been waiting for. The moment we've teased for years that some of you say we should midwife into existence. Some of you have called us mother for teasing it. And that's right, folks. We're doing the adult baby episode. And who better to join us for this than Dave Infante, the man so good. They had to name him Dave Baby. Dave Baby... I, I know you don't lie. I, I can tell by your face. It's actually difficult for me to tell by your expression what you're thinking about that. But I got to tell you, Dave Infante, I am no habla espanol over here. I tried to learn Spanish my whole life. I failed, can barely speak English. I got to call you Dave Baby. We are not talking about adult babies, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> we are talking about adult beverages. That's right. Dave Infante, the man behind Fingers, of which I am a subscriber... I forgot to I forgot to for remember what the rest of that was, but it, it, Dave's got a great, fantastic newsletter Substack about the adult beverage industry. I subscribe to it. I read it. I don't even fucking drink. It's just you know, it's an interesting thing. One of the only things America produces is brewskis, and of course, you know, you work for Vine Pair too, and you've been covering the b- adult beverage industry, which Stop does make it sound kind of pornographic. The longest intro I've ever done. Don't tell me how to do my job of these intros. <laughs> Sorry, I'm drunk off of Power Adult Beverages, and Dave, thank you for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. That was quite a lead. In. What do I what do I do now? I'm baby, obviously. I'm baby baby. Yeah. Um, and I'm so glad to be here. We're we are so glad to have you. Liz, 
What are we talking about today? We're talking Coors. 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 We were, you know, before we started recording this, just as a little thing, we were talking about Coors Light, and we were trying to remember the last time we all had a Coors Light, which I think is famously, I mean, that is the worst beer ever, right, Coors Light? Oh, well, hmm. It's not a good beer. It's not <laughs> a, I mean, it's bad, right? It's not a good beer. You can house them, though. But it's, you can find, it's you a can bad find beer, beers, right? Yeah. You can, I don't like it. But it's England. a very popular bad beer. Yeah. Right? That's a, that's a good way to put it. Yeah, it's a, it's a very popular bad beer. I also think that uh, because the beer industry is not capable of acknowledging that it maybe has ever done a bad thing, um, that category is called the premium category that Coors Light is in, <laughs> oh, okay. and then and then the shit the shittier stuff, the shittier like Keystone and Natty yeah. and whatever. Oh, that's yeah. just that's not bad. That's just sub premium. I see. Oh, it's I sub see. premium. Oh, well, doesn't yeah. Coors the mountains change if it's cold? Right. The yeah, they like have can. that. Yeah, 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 yeah. But it's you know, despite being the manufacturer of the let's say worst premium beer in America, nice. There, Coors is what the second largest macro brewer in the country there it's a fucking huge company right enormous enormous company it belongs it is part of the molson Coors uh, organization which is the second largest macro brewer in the country yeah these are these are heavy hitters and like brace you said i mean this is one of the only things that america makes is beer i mean it seems maybe it's funny for us to be co- we you know we did an episode a while back on anheuser-busch and the bush family mm-hmm. and you know obviously we've done an episode about anchor um, and maybe we'll talk about that a little bit more later on in the episode today. But maybe seems a little weird for us to be covering, you know, beer three episodes in. That's more than maybe people would think Truanon would cover. But, but no, it no, truly no. is. I mean, it is a big American industry, right? I like just the idea of just like we don't make anything anymore while we like crack beers, you know, like just <laughs> that, <laughs> that sort of like boomer grievance about like in my I used to make ball bearings I'm uh, fucking Budweiser. Yeah, exactly right. Like this is a manufacturing industry in the U.S. that can't be offshored. You can't really mm. uh, easily ship brewing jobs to India because then you got to ship the beer back. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, so it's uh, it's one of the it's one of the last sort of you know ladders to the middle class for people who work with their hands for people coming out of the trades. So, uh, you know, another reason that we might on this particular show also cover Coors is because, um, actually, let me bring this up to the present day. People are talking about now, like, oh, you know, well, we talked about this in the intro a little bit. Budweiser, it's like too political or whatever. It's like, they're, you know, they're getting woke. Bud, Bud Light is now a woke beer because of that lady. The, the beer gay, yeah. They turn yeah, the they turn the, the beer gay. The people who drink the beer are gay, and now it's gay to be skinny but also enjoy a nice little tasty beverage treat. But in the past, in the beer industry, there has been a company that has been more political than you might want beer companies to ever be, and that would be Coors. I recommended a book on this show before, um, several years ago, I think, when we were doing an episode about uh, Nazis in South America called The Coors Connection. Mm. And, uh, you know, maybe for people of my generation, for all of our generations, really, like, Coors has kind of been something, it's just like, you know, it's like a shitty, cheap, light beer. But for many decades, Coors was one of the main funders and really some of the family members' big faces on what I think you could call sort of the respectable, radical right of this country. Uh, And today we're going to talk a little bit about that history. So what is going on with this company? Who the fuck is Coors? 
<laughs> what the what the fuck are these guys? Yeah, so uh, the Coors Brewing Company, officially uh, Adolf Coors uh, Brewing Company, gets started in Golden, Colorado in the 19th century. Um, I'll spare you the, the long and boring history, but they make it through Prohibition um, by making uh, uh, ceramics, which will be relevant later on in our conversation, I suspect. Um, and they come out the other side with a vastly uh, more wide-open uh, beer market than pre-prohibition. There's just a lot more opportunity because so many breweries went out of business. And the Coors family uh, is still standing. They have cash you know, to spend. They upgrade the facilities in Golden, Colorado, and they get to making uh, the beer that made them famous, which is what we know now as Coors Banquet, but back then was just Coors. There was no other type of Coors. It was just the one. Um, and they have a lot of success, but as you, as you noted, and the reason that it's a true and on, uh, it's in the lane for you guys is that the Coors family, in addition to making, you know, serviceable adjunct lager out in golden Colorado, um, is sort of possessed of a manifest destiny sort of like uh, a prim and proper Western mm-hmm. libertarianism, um, mm-hmm. just sort of a, the, the prohibition, you know, prohibition was a huge turning point for many people and for the country, but also for the Coors family in particular, which saw the federal, saw it as federal encroachment that, you know, nearly, uh, uh, you know, put them out of business and, and was an existential crisis for their family. And from that, uh, conflict from that situation flows a deep, um, frustration with, and, and, you know, later on just a paranoia towards, uh, uh, federal government towards really government encroachment of any kind. And they come to be some of the biggest early money spenders on what would come to be known as the new right, like the modern conservative project, the guys who make your beer. I, I would say um, you can sort of see the genesis of a lot of this in the original Adolf Coors, mm. who comes over from Germany. I, I believe, and this is maybe uh, apocryphal, although I think it's technically literally true, but I don't know if this is the exact reason, but comes over to America so that he doesn't have to fight uh, you know, in the Prussian army uh, during the many wars of the mid-18th century, or 1800s there, rather. Um, and he becomes... Yeah, there's, there's almost like these two types of German immigrants that come to America, right? There's a lot of them who work in the breweries, particularly in San Francisco. This is something we've covered on the show, who are like this very like radical group of people, you know, like the 48ers who come over here who are like very, you know, sort of like they're socialists or, or proto-socialists, some of them who are like very, uh, very into unions and things like that. And then you have someone like Adolf Coors who inherits some more of the, let's say, Prussian style mm. of doing things. Sensibility. Yes, <laughs> yes. I think there's also like a very classic archetype of a, a kind of person who hates, who's like a worker but hates labor unions because they want to align themselves and fashion themselves to someday be the boss, right? They want to like imagine themselves as becoming the boss and be next to the boss. And Adolf himself like really fits this type. Yeah. Like, uh, like he's a small business owner. He's you know he's the backbone of this country, a petit bourgeois. 
So we get to, I mean, I know that the, the, you know, like you said, the company starts a ceramics company during Prohibition, which is actually, I will say, you know, I've read a fair little amount about the brewing industry in America, and that was a smart move on their part. They actually make a shit ton of money from that now. Uh, But it's really, it's like, seems like in the post-World War II environment is really when they start, like, blowing up and, like, kind of get the modern beer market seemed to take shape. Is that, is that fair to say? Yeah. Oh, totally. I mean, after Prohibition, obviously it clears out a ton of local competition. The premise of a regional brewery was kind of barely existed before Prohibition. But after Prohibition, with the advent of the refrigerated rail car and soon thereafter, you know, like national television advertising, um, these are kind of the two big catalysts that enable big players like Anheuser-Busch, which is the biggest coming out of St. Louis, um, but also Miller, Strohs, uh, Schlitz. Um, these are kind of like the big titans of this industry, and it's there. In, the country is theirs for the taking. The American drinking public is thirsty, drinking you know uh, uh, more per capita than we do now, um, and beer is is the drink because liquor is still stigmatized coming off of prohibition and blue mm-hmm. laws are keeping it restricted um, in many states, especially in the Southeast and the Mountain West. Um, and so the the big brewers start treating this business like um, like G treated you know appliance manufacturing. They start making the widgets right. You you open breweries near where your customer base is. So over the course of the the 50s and 60s, Anheuser-Busch opens, I think, somewhere like 12 breweries across the country. Schlitz is opening maybe, you know, uh, eight or so um, all around the world or around the country to get access to those markets. And it's it's a dramatically different business than what it looked like pre-prohibition, but it's incredibly lucrative for the companies that are able to take advantage of it. But Coors resisted going national for a while, right? They wanted to stay regional. Yeah, for a long, you're right, Liz. Like so, for a long time, the allure of Coors mm-hmm. um, was this this sort of aura that this Rocky Mountain brewed beer was only available in the West. You couldn't get it back east. Um, they distributed only in a handful of of states throughout the West. Obviously, Colorado and the surrounding areas, and they. Uh, this was kind of their thing. I mean, the charitable way of looking at it was that. Um, you know, Bill and Joe Coors, who uh, ran the company for most of the 20th century, um, post-prohibition, wanted to keep the beer fresh. It was unpasteurized. They wanted to keep it fresh and deliver it to market. So you can't ship it Raw beer. You got to have the raw beer. It's like raw milk. Same people drink it, you know? Yeah. Uh, Yeah. Uh, And, you know, they, there's like, a nice story to be told about that, right? Like in the age of consolidation and of homogenization of foodstuffs, especially mm-hmm. um, there's this sort of maverick company that's never taken a dime of debt mm-hmm. uh, that insists on doing it their way. Um, and for, for many, many years uh, until like the late seventies, you couldn't, you couldn't get cores uh, anywhere, but those original uh, mountain West States. Well, I think one of the main reasons that people might know that there was something a little funky going on with Coors uh, during the 20th century was maybe they – I remember this was a, sort of a part of the, the the biographical movie about Harvey Milk, the Coors boycott. Uh, and it's, it's, it's mentioned in various sort of like um, 
I guess, minority histories of America. But the Coors boycott is a pretty big part of the Coors story, both in terms of it's one of the biggest boycotts in, I think, American history and one of the more successful ones. Um, and it's also a pretty galvanizing moment for the Coors family themselves. And you can sort of trace a lot of the political developments of the members of the Coors family who, by the way, are very, very involved in the actual operations of the company. And like, you know, they, they got their, their paws on everything. Um, and that boycott, I believe starts in, I actually didn't know it was this long. It started in 1957, right? Yeah, that's when it that's when it first kicks off. Uh, 1957. You're right. It's like the longest, by some measures, uh, it's the longest ever consumer-led boycott by um, any American coalition of of, uh, of customers against any company. It lasts for 30 years and maybe even longer, depending on who you talk to, because 1987, the AFL CIO, which mm. You know, is, it has been party to the boycott at various points in its history, um, sort of cuts a face-saving deal with Pete mm-hmm. Coors. Um, at this point, obviously, the 87, the AFL-CIO is already hemorrhaging uh, 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 support. You know, union density is dropping dramatically, um, and they're looking for a way to say, you know, we got to win here. Um, it's kind of a Pyrrhic victory. They get the Coors family to commit to not – um, or to maintaining neutrality during the uh, the union campaign, the current union campaign that's going on at Coors at the time. Coors is able to defeat that union campaign ev- anyway. So, like, the AFL-CIO basically comes away with nothing. Yeah. Um, but, well, but, yeah, no, it's a very, very long, uh, very long boycott. What was the – so what was the history? Because that, that's a big part of this story here. Uh, what was the history of unions at Coors – Prior to the '57, I guess you could call it a lockout. Um, but what was 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 the was the brewery unionized prior to that? I know I've read some sort of like sketchy accounts of it being unionized in like the '20s or the '30s. Uh, what, what's the deal with that? Yeah, it has several unions uh, leading up to um, you know prohibition, and then even coming out of prohibition, many of them are still in place. They're usually pretty small. Um, you know, it's it employs a lot of people, but. Um, the individual unions that uh, you know represent different parts of the workforce um, are a little bit split up, and this enables cores to uh, when they sort of make their pivot into um, you know full throated anti unionism to sort of divide and conquer to, to pick them off one at a time, um, which is obviously a common union busting tactic. Um, but yeah, no, there were, there were a bunch of unions, of course. Um, it was a union workforce. The West is obviously not a bastion. Uh, the mountain West in particular is not a bastion, a stronghold of, of organized labor at that point or since, but, um, these are trades and a lot of the, the workers there are, are consider themselves tradesmen. They're, they're brewers, they're, uh, they're engineers, they're electricians. Um, at one point, you know, or another, um, various unions look to organize more of cores. The Teamsters uh, are sniffing around because cores uh, is, you know, setting up its own uh, natural gas pipeline at one point, and that when the Teamsters want the people building and manning that that uh, pipeline to be Teamster. Um, they're able to be successfully repelled, but there are the the long and the short of it is there are unions at Coors, um, but uh, uh, eventually the Coors family just kind of sours on the idea. 
Yeah, and in '57, there's what amounts to basically a lockout. I know, like they, you know, I think some some employees go on strike and they replace those striking workers and are able to decertify the union in '57. Yeah, so uh, Colorado has a pretty unusual um, like set of labor laws, and the Coors family was actually pretty instrumental in like implementing these labor mm-hmm. laws. Ah, but, you don't say. Yeah, I know. Shocking, right? Um, but uh, basically, it's informed. You know that it's informed by their experience, sort of dealing with their own unions. They realize that they can bring in. Um, you know, when workers go on strike, they can bring in scabs. You know, they can get people to cross the picket line, um, bring them in, and then after a certain amount of time, they're allowed to call for a decertification vote that then is held not with the striking workers who obviously are not going to vote to decertify their own union because they're on strike about it. They clearly believe in it enough to be out on the picket line. They're not going to you know, call it decert then, um, but with the scabs in the, in the plant itself. So it's kind of a rigged vote. It's like, yeah. yeah, I mean, you know, like obviously these guys are being treated incredibly well. The Coors family, you know, they, they're especially Bill Coors, not Joe so much, but are known to be very charismatic, very um, sort mm-hmm. of mag- magnetic, and, and people like him on the floor. Um, they are, to their limited credit, uh, very um, capable uh, Nepo babies. You know, like they're not your standard, uh, uh, what we think of them as now, but like they actually come up working the brewery. So they, they earn a fair amount of respect in the eyes of workers that don't maybe know them as well or, or are seeing the best possible face of them and are being showered with, uh, uh, you know, a fraction of their, their vast beer fortune. Um, and so it's, it's not difficult for them to, to, to sway them to their side. I know that the boycott expands at a certain point. I think this can maybe, we can maybe weave in some other parts of the story with this too. Uh, can expand when uh, minority groups, particularly gay people, uh, start boycotting Coors due to Coors's, I mean, insane hiring practices. I know I don't have the statistics in front of me, but it's something like 2% black or Latino workforce. <laughs> uh, they have a lie detector test that yeah. you have to take when you get a job there. They were doing like personality tests too and, yeah. like, and like IQ quizzes and stuff like that. Just they, crazy they stuff. They just straight up ask you, are you gay? And if you say yes, or if the lie detector test detects your no as a yes, you just can't get a job there. And because of that, and because of, uh, I think, uh, really led by a gay teamster named Howard Wallace in San Francisco, um, that that strike really, or excuse me, rather, that boycott really expands to not serving Coors in gay bars. And, like, you know, it, it becomes a really, a, a, a sort of a massive consumer boycott and moves away from just being a labor boycott to being a boycott um, for, for all kinds of different groups. Yeah, so there's a few different uh, sort of groups in the coalition. The There were Chicano activists that were very frustrated with Coors hiring practices. They felt that, um, and, you know, the statistics back this up from what I've seen and read that um, if there were uh, Latin uh, Chicano workers in the course facility, there were very few of them. They typically were not able to advance in the company, more menial jobs, uh, et cetera. So 
yes, technically employees, not really, you know, what you're looking for from, from employment. Um, uh, black activists got involved for similar reasons. Uh, also, Bill and Joe Kors, um, you know, there's some debate over whether or not they were actually racist or just incredibly bad at talking to the press. Well, um, let's, they've made incredibly racist comments to the press yeah. Multiple times over. I'm going to go and say I know that you're a journalist, but we're uh, not. We're 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 mere imbibers of the substance of the <laughs> heavenly grape. Uh, they're fully racist. Yeah, they're crazy <laughs> they're racist. So racist. They said crazy they're pre- they're racist, racist shit. They they yeah. yeah. I mean, they're they're racist in like ways that they're working with like guy. They're like their money is going to like Hungarian. War criminals and stuff, racist. Yeah. Like we're t- we're not talking about your racist like guy in the factory floor. Like they're finding racisms from Europe and putting their money behind that. That's how ra- they're racist against other kinds of white people. Yeah. So I mean, they were saying a bunch of racist shit. You're absolutely right. And you know, more importantly, as you sort of mentioned, the Coors family around this time starts to flex its political muscles and start funding organizations that dramatically over-index on the amount of harm they cause to minority communities. So you start to see this coalition taking shape. Chicano activists, they had just come off, uh, uh, you know, sort of the, um, the, the boycotts in the California grape fields. Which, um, by the way, if I may interrupt, Coors sent in trucks to help the grape companies beat the boycotts. They, they were to correct. beat the strikers. Uh, Coors actually literally sent in Coors-branded trucks to help them against the strikers. And not for, like, business. They had no business with the grapes. It was just a motherfucker move. They just bought the grapes and then, like, handed them out to their wealthy friends. Yeah. Uh, truckloads of grapes just to ha- so, so the California land barons had a market, had a scab market, effectively, for the produce that no one was buying because the farm workers had, uh, had erected such a successful boycott. Which, you know, I don't know, man. Like... Say what you will about, uh, uh, you know, labor. I'm not very sympathetic to people who aren't sympathetic to unions and boycotts generally, but like, I suppose you might be able to find some fucking principled gray area in there somewhere. But like, once you're actively sending your company trucks to buy like waste grapes that you don't even want, I think mm-hmm. you've, yeah. you've sort of, you've sort of crossed a line there. Um, but yeah, no, so the, the LGBTQ community gets involved, the Teamsters get involved, um, and at varying points, you know, different parts of the coalition are stronger or weaker, but this thing runs for about 30 years, and it does further radicalize, uh, you know, it, it's sort of further red pills or whatever, um, the Coors brothers, and in particular, Joe Coors. Which I think is a brilliant segue to talking about the Coors brothers. So the main ones that I'm familiar with are Bill and Joe Coors. And like you said, this is a big family. This is a family that was very involved in the operations, both of their brewery, but also of their, let's say, charitable arm. And it's really during the Cold War, at least like this from the 60s onwards, and especially towards the Reagan era, that these guys are like up in national politics. And so tell me, talk to me about red pill me on the red pilled Coors family. (laughs) <laughs> so Bill and Joe Coors are the two brothers who, like I said, m- you know, steward the company through its post-prohibition era and right up until almost the turn of, of the 21st century. These guys are in control for a long time. 
the the vibes on the two are a little bit different. Joe is thought of as, you know, really sort of ramrod straight. He's tall as shit, by the way. Um, if you look up pictures of this guy, he looks like an undertaker. Yeah, he um, looks like Slenderman. <laughs> right, yeah. Uh, and he, you know, he's very, very socially conservative, like not, you know, not gregarious, not effusive. He's not a salesperson at all. Um, you know, this is just, he, he is more on the business side of things. Bill, uh, William Coors, um, is kind of, like I said, the more charismatic of the, of the two. Um, and he, you know, at various points, they hold different positions in the company, president, chairman, CEO, yada, yada. Mm -hmm. Um, but they are de facto, um, sort of like, uh, hand in glove running the company, um, for, for decades. And they, they kind of diverge in different ways at times uh, on their specific politics. Um, you know, I think Bill is much more thought of as the moderate one um, and less driven by ideology and more driven by just like a your standard issue, like post-war business brain. Mm-hmm. Um, but um, that is not true of – and he does some like hippy-dippy shit too. Like he puts in like a wellness center – in the, in the Coors Brewery at one point. And then, by the way, uh, because he, like, has success with meditation and stuff, which, on one hand, it's nice. Uh, on the other, at one point, when he's, like, mad about some bad press, where they're constantly getting bad press, obviously, uh, he makes attending, like, sessions at the Wellness Center mandatory for his employees. <laughs> well, listen, like, the Nazis <laughs> were into vegetarianism and nudism. Right? You know, it's it's uh, hippy dippy stuff does not preclude yeah. extreme right wing, oftentimes well, fascistic. Well, this goes hard right like way faster than anyone. Look can. at Silicon Valley. Yeah, you know. <laughs> yeah, they're drinking raw water over there, and they're yeah. also like yeah, they could you know, have pivoted with that raw beer stuff. It probably would have done real well. <laughs> Hire some blood boys, you know? It's, it's crazy. <laughs> when I drink raw water, when I get down there in the fucking sewer and I lap it up like a little thirsty cat, people stare at me on the street like I'm some kind of maniac. And I sure. say, no, this is what they're doing in the valley. This is what they're doing to live to be 200 years old. And it tastes good after a while. But, <laughs> I, I mean, really, it's Joe Coors who is, like, out. And, I mean, Bill Coors is a fucking freak. But Joe Coors is, like... My God, he he is he is a, a Cold War mutant. <laughs> Joe Kors is what you what we would later come to think of as like the proto money man of the entire American like modern con- neoconservative movement. Yeah, yeah, he's like he's sort of like I mean, Teal isn't a neoconservative; he's something else. But he's like I feel like he has sort of a Tealian posture in this, where he like views himself as like someone who can disperse and like make or break these groups. You know? Well, the election of Reagan was like a pretty important point during this this whole thing, right? Because that comes at the tail end of the boycott, and really like supercharges Joe's national profile as well. Because he's that's his boy. He's super tight with Reagan and had been for some years. Reagan is the culmination of millions of dollars that Joe has been throwing at various levels of the conservative movement for over a decade at that point. So when Reagan gets elected in 1980, this is, I mean, it's a triumphant moment for Joe. He is part of uh, the kitchen cabinet, uh, which is sort of infamously this, you know, like shadow set of, of, uh, officers that surround Reagan and, uh, and convince him to do various 
bad shit. Um, he advises on the transition team. He puts, uh, at one point, Neil Gorsuch's mom, mm-hmm. um, Ann Gorsuch. Uh, She's on, crazy. She was so crazy. She got fired like right away. I think actually from the Capitol. Yeah, she didn't. She didn't last long. But he put her in charge. She had like written a bunch of like bananas opinions about yeah. how the e- the EPA was communism or whatever. Classic. And uh, yeah, which is like you know, shut up and play the hits. Like <laughs> Nixon had established the EPA, so obviously uh, Reagan's there to blow it up. And he puts her in charge of the EPA right when he gets in. So it's kind of, I mean, now that's not as scandalous because that's the standard move is to put the, you know, sort of revolving door lobbyist slash, you know, politician who's most, uh, has the most animus towards the agency in charge of that agency so they can gut it from the inside. But this is a pretty uh, uh, bold move and it's one that has Joe Corr's fingerprints on it. So Reagan was absolutely like the fruition of Joe's project um, to fund the new right. But it starts, you know, like 16, 14, 16 years or earlier, yeah. um, or even earlier, depending on when you first pinpoint it, uh, when he gets involved in Goldwater's campaign um, and really kind of like starts to realize like, holy shit, like, all of the things that I've been frustrated about, or I've been kind of like railing on about, in terms of uh, uh, the direction this country is going and how, um, you know, this, the, the free market cannot be fettered, et cetera, et cetera. Like there's, this is not just something I think there are other people like me out there. And mm-hmm. Gold, Goldwater is sort of his like aha moment where he realizes like, okay, this is a thing. And, oh shit, I have so much money. Uh, this thing is going to need a lot of money to grow. I need to start cutting checks. Yeah. And, and from there, uh, things kind of, things kind of blossom, um, in some strange directions. I mean, he dabbles in some politics himself. Uh, he gets elected to the, um, Colorado university board of regents in 1966, uh, which is, you know, the height of the, you know, we're in the sixties. What's happening on campus is captivating the nation, um, and Joe is going toe to toe with students and like yelling at them to like cut their hair and like getting football players, getting jocks to like beat up hippies that are like blocking convention mm-hmm. centers where like Reagan is coming to speak on campus. Like it, it's all happening for Joe. Um, he was not particularly popular as a regent. Uh, and it became clear at that point that he didn't really have like the finesse to hold uh, like higher office, even though he reportedly had aspirations to. Um, so after, you know, the Board of Regents, he recedes a little bit to the background and, uh, and you know, becomes, becomes the money man. Yeah, I mean, there's two things with that, right? Like one is the fact that he really got behind Coors Tech, which at this point had tra- transitioned from, you know, making all these different ceramics products to basically making a lot of body armor for the U.S. government, which is, you know, it's, it's the Cold War. The government needs some motherfucking body armor, and he is making a fucking killing building this company up. And at the same time, he starts funding all of these different institutions. Now, I did not know this prior to having read the Coors Connection, but he basically funded the the Heritage Foundation. Like he was the he was one of the people the that essentially money. gave him their seed money. <laughs> and then uh, I think it was about two hundred fifty thousand dollars. Their entire first year operating budget yep. 
came from Joe Coors and, and Coors beer. Mm. And after that, in, per, in perpetuity, I don't, I'm sure it's, it's changed now, but it was 300000 every year. And that's a just year. one yeah. a year, which is crazy. I mean, we're talking early 72, I think, Heritage Foundation starts. Yep, and like yep he, 73, he, yeah, yeah. And this is really like, I mean, you know, Heritage Foundation now, I think a lot of people are like, oh, there's just some goofy, like they're a little out of step with the times, even on the right. Um, but they were, especially in the 70s and 80s, a huge force yeah. on the right. And, and part of what you, you mentioned earlier, really part of this new right that, that started emerging during this period. Yeah, so I, I take that phrase from the guy who wrote Course Connection, Russ Bellant, the investigative journalist who put together this book. It's not that thick if you're interested in this shit at all. I highly recommend reading it. It's like where all the bodies are buried in terms of you know, campaign donations and, you know, the various quote unquote philanthropies that the Coors Foundation undertakes and the Coors family, you know, personally undertakes uh, during this period. But yeah, the Heritage Foundation is launched in 1973. Um, the other book that I would recommend is Citizen Coors by Dan Baum. Um, and Dan Baum reports that the gestation of the Heritage Foundation comes out of basically like uh, uh, Joe wanting to get more involved, but not knowing how to, and kind of like, I don't know that he was like the country rube that might be overselling it a little bit, Mm -hmm. but like, uh, uh, the fact of the matter is like, Joe is excited. He's found his people and, uh, he is either convinced or delighted, uh, to, uh, put a quarter million dollars down on, what Dan Baum describes is basically like a clubhouse for uh, for young conservatives in Washington. Like they were basically, you know, at least Baum's version of this. And he was at the Wall Street Journal for many years. He's died now, but he's typically, in my understanding, considered a credible reporter. Baum's reporting on this indicates that basically they were um, – they were envious of like the Brookings Institute and like yes. wanted a cool pl- wanted like a cool place to hang out and like say mean things about black people and like couldn't find one. And surprised you couldn't up. do that at Brookings. Well, one of his, one of his big one of his big sort of guys that he funded was a dude named Paul Weyrich or Weyrick Weyrick. And yeah. the Ballant book, A Course Connection, has a lot on this because Russ Ballant's other big book is about Nazis in the Republican Party. Uh, especially during this era. I mean, I, I think people might forget now because a lot of those people have died off at this point. But during especially Nixon's um, Nixon's first or second run for president, the Republican Party sort of activated all of these like ethnic organizations, which were like all led by just like guys who did the Holocaust, but they're Hungarian or yeah. whatever. And so this is, it's just like ex- sort of extraordinary. So some of this Coors money, I mean, via Paul Weyrich, this massive collaboration of like ethnic groups is funded, like these far right wing ethnic groups um, that are that are sort of like collaborating with the, the Republican Party. But really, like, for example, there's one in particular, The then this is working with a group that the Coors founded called the Free Congress Foundation. Paul Weyrich, uh, also of Heritage, worked with FCF as well. Um, the OUN, the Organization of Ukrainian Nationalists, who we've covered extensively on this show, uh, they are like being funded by Paul Weyrich. They're funding these like literally Hungarian guys who helped do the Holocaust. Uh, and it's just like, it's just part of part and parcel of Republican activism in, in the 1960s and 70s because these guys are anti-communist. They have these bona fides, um, bona fides, whatever. Uh, 
And Joseph Coors is more than happy to support them because, frankly, he probably agrees with them on a lot of points. I think there's like – you're right that there's just this kind of like incredible web of organizations and acronyms. They all have acronyms. They're fucking impossible to all keep yeah. straight in your head. But the Free Congress Foundation is one of the big ones. Um, the uh, uh, Heritage Foundation is obviously one of the other big ones. Um, but it gets – the money flows through these different organizations at different times um, and just gets dispersed like across a, mm-hmm. a much more um, sort of broad or uh, a far-flung set of operations that get spun up um, you know, based on whatever like particular uh, uh, Cold War sort of um, – outflanking maneuver or anti-communist like panic has arisen in the uh the coalescing or the congealing you know GOP establish the new GOP establishment yeah and and always or not always but but quite often that money you know three or four steps removed is flowing through heritage uh or flowing directly through the course foundation and so this isn't to say that Joe is the guy like you know, polishing up Laszlo, whatever's, you know, iron cross and being like, you're doing great work out there, man. Like, you know, get back out there. But, um, it's the sort of thing, you know, what what is it called in like the banking industry? Like know your customer laws or right. Like it's at some point it strains credulity to imagine that like he just was kept on cutting these checks without even being somewhat curious uh, where the money was ultimately ending up, especially given what we know about him as a business owner being fairly frugal and being oriented around sort of, you know, like uh, in a, at a personal level, not being ostentatious, not spending a lot of money, et cetera, et cetera. He was spending a lot of money on the political project and, uh, and it was, you know, it was going towards a lot of these uh, far right uh, organizations that were reshaping the country in real time at that point. Yeah. Yeah. And I know that he had a big part to play also in the, in the sort of the conservative Christian movement that wrote, that rose up around like Pat Robertson and Jerry Falwell, because he himself, Joe Coors, in addition to a lot of the other members of the Coors family was sort of this millenary Christian. And I, I think Joe Coors in particular thought that the apocalypse was going to happen in the year 2000, which Unfortunately, it it just did. Or did it? Or did it? We're living in it. It could be in hell right now. Yeah, you're right. <laughs> um, but he was he had this like he had this sort of um, apocalyptic Christianity that his brothers, even if they were more well, less I guess personally involved in a lot of these um, unsavory organizations, that they also shared. Apparently, uh, the, the the what I've read is they got it from their mother Holly, who was a very you know sort of wacko Christian. Um, you know, a lot of this, though, leads up to eventually Joe Coors is implicated in the Iran-Contra affair. Yeah, like any good Republican money man of this era, uh, Joe eventually finds himself testifying before Congress uh, in 1987 <laughs> for uh, for some money that he may have handled or uh, or sent to, uh, to a fellow called uh, Ollie North, Lieutenant Colonel uh, Oliver North who was point man on the Iran-Contra incident. Joe is really involved in this uh, for, for most of the 80s. At different points, he gets involved in, um, you know, these fundraisers for, like, Nicaraguan re- refugee organizations that are thinly veiled 
CIA covers that everyone in Washington sort of knows are, you know, ops. Um, Mm. You know, again, whether he knows or not, uh, it would be impossible to say for sure, but it's sort of a thing where you kind of, it, you you don't get a benefit of the doubt at that point. Everyone everyone knows, and you're the one writing the checks. You got to kind of know where that stuff's going. Um, he also, uh, you know, indicating sort of where his motive is or, or what he what his thoughts are on the matter. At one point, he transfers sixty five thousand dollars directly to uh, uh, what is it called Lake uh, Lake Corporation? I forget what the the shell organization that Ollie North was using. It's a Swiss. It's, it, was a, it was the Swiss bank account of Ollie North's shell company. Um, and that comes, according to Bellant's uh, report, that comes directly from Joe Kors, uh, uh account. And, and that is something that he testifies to later on in 1987 in front of Congress. So, you know, this is, he's very involved in this. Yeah, I, I, it's 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 sort of. I mean, he bought the Contras a plane, and yeah. and at this he point, a, plane. <laughs> a lot of these Republican guys. I mean, he is fully. He is like he's funding the World Anti Communist League, who we have covered extensively on this yeah. show. Um, I mean, he, this is really like we are talking about. No, we're no longer talking about just like giving money to these ethnic groups or maybe CIA tied in some way. Like this is fully like. I mean, these are these are these are the Contras, right? These are the people running coke and doing terrorism and and, and you know massacring villagers and all and, that. stuff. And they're like getting together for like death squad conventions. Yeah, like they're not even just doing death squad shit. They're like coming together at like a LinkedIn conference to yep. like share yeah. share best practices about running death squads. Well, it's all about networking at and, this point, right? It's the eighties. <laughs> like you gotta like really build your networks, really build out, you know, who you're talking to, build your skill sets so you can advance. All that I mean stuff. at some of these meetings uh, that Joe Kors was at, like there's guys who are tied up in like the Nugan Hand scandal. There's people who are like representatives of the Moonies there's guys who are like you know representative of these like anti-communist groups that are you know funded by the government of Taiwan who are basically death squads and there's like representatives of the contras and it's like he is deep into like 80s black money i don't even over call it conservatism at this point but like sort of black international black terror um and you know right this is this is this is the mid 80s here and I, you know, I was born in 1989, and for me growing up, I actually didn't really know that Coors was part of this, like, big right-wing sort of, like, terrifying push. Um, and what, what, like, what, what changed? Like, what happened here? I know that Joe Coors uh, started fucking around on his wife. Does that play any factor in, the, in, the, in, the, in Coors going woke? <laughs> yeah, lost his nerve. Yeah, so, right, exactly. Like, ramrod straight, uh, moral majority Joe Coors, as, you know, has since been repeated a hundred times over with other Republican figures, is shown to be having, is is stepping out on his wife. He's he's fooling around behind Holly's back. It's a long-standing, reportedly a 13-year affair, bomb finds. um, And he, even fucking worse, uh, then just cheating on her, uh, elopes to California, California, the fucking, the fucking uh, godless, you know, coast. Mm. And ever and, since Reagan left, that is <laughs> right. And uh, and and Joe sort of becomes, uh, you know, fades into the background at that point. But 
Um, I think the turn really comes for, for cores when yes, Joe steps away. Yes. Bill, you know, starts slowing down cause he's at this point quite old. Um, but they've been grooming, uh, uh, Pete cores, the younger generation. I forget if he's Bill's, I think he's Joe's son. Um, they've been grooming Pete cores to eventually take over the company. And, and also Jeff cores, um, who's, who's Pete's cousin, I want to say, I don't know, there's so many of them, but they're of the same generation, Pete and Jeff, um, and they are supposed to be taking over the company. Jeff has a crisis of confidence or a crisis of religious uh, faith because he believes that uh, selling beer is actually um, uh, not, you know, sort of compatible with his, his Christian beliefs. Um, and so it falls on Pete, Coors, to to take the company into the next generation. And with Joe out of the picture and, and Bill slowing down, um, there were, there are a few obstructions to Pete taking over. Um, whereas like his uncle and his dad for years would basically just like kind of, you know, make him do a ton of grunt work, but Mm -hmm. also not ever really like get to, you know, make any exciting decisions to like take the company forward. He begged them, to his limited credit here, he begged them for years to launch Coors Light, seeing that light beer was going to be a thing when Miller yeah. rolled it out in 1975. It took him five years uh, uh, to get it, or to four years to get it really going, and and they lost, you know, they lost a step on that. So Pete Coors has some business chops. Um, he's again presented as the more moderate, more palatable version of the Coors dynasty. And remember, at this point, the the boycott has been going on for years and years. Yeah. Um, and people know court like this is a big national thing. It's not like, you know, people see it on Twitter and then like forget about it five seconds later. Like this is sustained media coverage. 60 Minutes does a whole segment on it, which ultimately wasn't very favorable to the boycotters, but still like gets it out there. There are magazine ads. Um, you know, there's people know the Coors family as you know, synonymous with this brand, this strain of conservatism. And uh, Pete Coors has this you know, big challenge in front of him, which is like, okay, like I need to steer the company in a new direction and also like convince people that like I'm different than, you know, my uncle and my dad who represent the axis of, you know, right wing evil to Mm -hmm. a large swath of the country. So how does he do it? He, he doesn't really, he tries, um, he tries a bunch of different things. They release Coors Light in, in 1978 when Bill and, and Joe are still around. He finally convinced them to do it. That succeeds, and it's really, you know... It, it a, really a delicious a, beer that we all love and enjoy <laughs> yeah, constantly. Right as we as we noted, yeah. Um, they push east, finally. They, um, you know, there's a couple unfavorable uh, uh, court rulings that dictate the way they can instruct their distributors to handle their product. This makes it even more sort of expeditious for them to finally establish a a plant in Virginia, which they do in the late seventies. Um, by the time Pete really hits his stride and is, you know, closer to being in control of the company, um, the beer industry consolidation has reached basically Mm -hmm. its Zenith. Mm -hmm. There's like Anheuser-Busch Schlitz is falling apart at that point. Miller has, uh, bajillions of dollars of Philip Morris money because Philip Morris had bought into Miller at this point. So Miller has all of Philip Morris's money plus all of their marketing muscle. So they're the number two brewery in the country. And there's going to be a race. It becomes clear to everyone that there's going to be a race for one more brewery to be a big national brewery. And the rest are not going to 
not going to make, make it. it. They're yeah. not. Yeah. There's no way that this company, this country can support this many brands. It's got to, there's going to be a falling out. Pete Coors tries to strike a deal with Stroh's uh, to buy the company. Um, it looks great. Wall Street loves it. Um, and then at the last minute, Bill comes in and, uh, you know, rumor is it happens behind closed doors, but rumor is Bill kiboshes it. Um, and the company sort of, you know, like limps along, uh, limps is too strong a word. It's, it's doing okay under Pete's governance, but, um, it's definitely the, the third wheel between, uh, Anheuser-Busch and Miller, um, and then eventually it gets it merges with Molson, uh, the Canadian firm, in two thousand four. I want to say, and that's basically the end of like what we know as the Coors Brewing Company. Yeah, yeah, like it's no longer like like every minute decision is not no longer made by a Coors family, but it's owned by like a na- an international conglomerate. Right. I mean, Molson Coors is literally international. It's a portfolio brand. They manage things just like any other CPG firm. This is the era of, you know, like building out a diversified portfolio of products. And that's, um, that's the business that all of a sudden the Coors brand is involved in, um, mostly to their benefit, but certainly not to the benefit of uh, the Coors family's control over the firm that bears their name. Now, it's interesting that you mention international conglomerates there, Senor Infante, because you and I have had a lot of conversations about a certain international conglomerate known as Sapporo. Um, I don't know if this is the best segue I've ever done, but um, you know what? But it's I'm the gonna segue keep, we're going to get. It's the segue that we're, that we're getting today. Um, you know, one of the other reasons that we wanted to have you talk on the show today is actually to talk about Anchor, because you have, I think, without a doubt, covered this story closer than anybody. Um, in fact, I think you uh, you were the first person who was not in the union or, n- you know, living with somebody in the union to know about the union. <laughs> um, but uh, you have been covering the, the story of both the, the Sapporo, uh, you know, the, the owner, ownership over Anchor Brewing Company, the company I used to work at, and the the union stuff, and now the sort of decline of of uh, Anchor under the aegis of Sapporo USA. And I uh, wanted to talk to you about that before we wrap up here because there's uh, there's been some as the developments that we talked about in the intro uh, and that Anchor is now saying they're shutting down. Yeah, so Anchor, uh, man, that takes us back. Is that, that's when we first started talking, yeah, right? I you actually, not, many I've, years ago. Yes, I found our first email, my first email to you, where uh, I think we thought we were going to launch like a month before we did, but we wanted to get some stuff. A uh, little source. Yeah, little I know. Source, I was, uh, myself as a source. Well, here's what you want to do. Listen up. Little worm. You want to find a guy, and I found. Well, I we, Dave was the only guy we had in mind. We were like, we got to get this guy. You want to find a guy who's going to be both. No disrespect to you, but probably sympathetic, and who like actually writes about this stuff. He can't yeah. get some chump, and so fit the bill 100 percent uh and so yeah we took it to dave yeah that's right so we we started talking about the union in late 2018 i think and yeah Mm -hmm. i mean i i'm i'm not afraid to say i'm sympathetic to organizing efforts that doesn't color my reporting i do a ton of reporting on how unions are shitty in various ways in terms of their corruption and their their Mm -hmm. mismanagement but like 
I don't know, man, the rest of the fucking mainstream media is incredibly sympathetic to the bosses. So, yeah. you know, let's balance, let's balance the scales here. But yeah, uh, so we started talking in 2018. I covered the union drive at Anchor uh, in 2019. You guys went through some rough union busting. I covered that. Um, you guys ultimately got your contract in place. You had left by the time the contractor was there or no, Brace? No, no, I left, I left after the contract. After the contract. Uh, so I covered the, the first year post-contract. Um, and then I got, you know, I got tipped off to a flurry of news items that I wound up breaking over the course of, you know, June and July, 2023 about this rapid unraveling that takes place at Anchor which at that point had only been owned by Sapporo for five plus years, you know, just under six years. They bought it in 2017 and it culminates with news that I broke a couple Wednesdays ago uh, that Sapporo is just going to shut down this firm that's been operating in San Francisco for 152 years. Uh, and so obviously the question is, what the fuck happened here? Uh, this, you know, the Japanese conglomerate is supposed to be much more patient, much more deliberate with the way they operate, you know, their acquisitions than, you know, their competitors in Heineken or, or uh, Anheuser-Busch. Um, and yet they're, they're cutting bait on this, on this storied, venerable business that means a ton to a ton of people um, and workers and customers alike are kind of left to pick up the pieces and be like, you know, how did we get here? Yeah, I mean, what are the causes for that? Because we covered in the intro to this episode uh, a New York Post article uh, about the union and about also me by name saying that the union was the cause of Anchor shutting down. And, you know, I know that's a popular sort of right-wing talking point. And I'm going to be honest with, with the audience here. If that was the case here, I would probably be forced in chagrin to admit that. But... I have some pretty good indications of how the brewery, brewery was being run. I saw how it was being run when I was there. I saw how it was being run after I left there. I've kept in you know contact with the workers. I've been there a couple of times. Um, it seems that Sapporo USA just didn't know what to do with Anchor after they realized that they couldn't actually really brew Sapporo there. Uh, yeah, I mean, a ton of stuff, obviously, uh, this stuff is never like tidy and complete and coherent, but the reporting I've been getting, which has mostly been from the workers themselves, as well as a few former workers who are still, you know, relatively recently departed from anchor. Um, they, they paint a picture that this big multinational corporation came in, maybe bought the wrong company, bought the wrong brewery, not the one that, you know, was going to fit their needs. Um, and then has kind of been frustrated with it and not, um, you know, has been trying to retrofit it and then has ultimately just decided to kind of neglect it um, ever since. And so there's a bunch, I don't want to get too in the weeds because I know the True Non audience is not a, a beer business audience so much <laughs> as a, uh, <laughs> I don't know, how do you describe your audience? <laughs> uh, well, let me just say, there's some certain words you can't say on radio and it's all those in one <laughs> sentence. A bunch of rascals. <laughs> yeah, there you go. But, you know, I think like the long and the short of it is the company gets out this really slick statement from a high powered uh, third party crisis PR guy in San Sam Francisco. Sam Singer. Our, our man, Sammy Sings. Um, and it comes out in the middle of the night and it says basically Anchor is being liquidated and there's nothing that anyone could do. This is just 
the way things go sometimes. Uh, you know, the market and the pandemic and we've been losing money and blah, blah, blah. Yeah, I remember um, I read the piece in the Chronicle and it was just like a, I mean, it was just a PR piece written at 2 a.m. It yeah, was pretty it, shocking. It was crazy because it was, it seems like it was like, I mean, obviously it was coordinated with Anchor, but like there's no input from any of the workers or yeah. anything. It's just like, here's the company's side of the story. Yeah, the, the Chronicle... I mean, I don't know anyone over there. I think obviously they do some good work sometimes. They, it was, I think it was a lousy frame. I think it was not great the way they did that. Yeah. Uh, also, I knew, I had a pretty good, I'd been working this beat, you know, at this point pretty hard for a month. So I had gotten the tip that someone, a photographer from the Chronicle, was up at uh, Petrero Hill at the Anchor ta- Public Taps on Tuesday. Um, mm. The announcement is supposed to go live on Wednesday. Workers tell me they've got a 9 a.m. meeting mm-hmm. that morning, local time. The Sam Singer, the the flack, is trying to basically, you know, uh, brush me off or hold me off um, and says, you know, he's busy with other clients until Wednesday morning. Mm. I had sent him an email being like, hey, is Anchor closing or not? I got a bunch of people saying it is all you got to do is tell me no and there's no story. And he's like, can we talk Wednesday? <laughs> Which Shit. is dope. There's you know, like, oh, yeah. yeah, right. So so I got on the tip and uh, so we I ran Tuesday night with it on VinePair to make sure I scooped it instead of letting, you know, someone else get the news because I figured he was he had given the exclusive to the Chronicle. And I was glad I did because like, you know, obviously, like uh, part of the business is is trying to get scoops, and I, that's not really my beat. But like, it's always fun to get a scoop, and it's competitive and whatever. But I was more glad because, like, when you saw and I saw their coverage, I was just like, oh man, that stinks, man. Mm-hmm. It was it was just basically the the guys, the Sam Singer's talking points, and um, the workers tell a totally different story. They talk about you know how Sapporo USA mismanaged the company. Um, you know, by uh, uh, trying to retrofit it to brew Sapporo rice lager, um, by starving it of resources once they acquired Stone Brewery mm-hmm. um, in San Diego, um, a bunch of other things. You know, oh, spatting with the union like for no fucking reason. Like they bought in, they brought in this like ballbuster on the production line. Oh like, yeah, who's who is basically seemed like their job was just to like try to like write up union members on infractions. Um, you know, if you want to go like a one step further down the, you know, the conspiracy hole, one reason that that might have been what they did was because it would be easier to sell the company if there were no union workforce, you can just kind of sell it for parts with no input from anyone. Um, and so maybe there was a plan there or there was a vague hope there that they could get enough. Uh, uh, workers who were pro-union to just quit on their own volition um, that they could call a decertification. Who knows? Um, you know, a lot of that stuff is kind of unknowable or at least like unknowable to the point where I would be able to print something about it. But yeah. it's fair speculation to like wonder like, okay, what's the what was the point of this like ramped up um, aggressive campaign towards the union that workers say, you know, really started ratcheting up, you know, right at the top of 2023. Um, so I think like, you know, again, I, I don't want to get too in the weeds just because I don't want to bore you guys, but like the, the zoom out story is that like this historic company survives a century and a half of everything the world fucking throws at it. Right. Like, uh, uh, the, you know, boom and bust of the gold rush, the, uh, San Francisco earthquake prohibition, two world wars, 
fucking God knows what else. Um, and it makes it all the way to 2017. And then six years later, support saying there's nothing we could do. Uh, it's time to send it to the junkyard. I, you have to, you have to be skeptical of that story. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, now that now the plan is to buy, I believe August first or August second, it's going to one of those creditor things, and they are essentially going to sell it for parts. That's where it looks like it's headed. Yeah, in California, this process is called uh, assignment to the for the benefit of creditors. So it's basically an alternative to the bankruptcy process. I'm actually hoping to speak with some uh, folks who manage this type of thing later this week and report that out a little bit more. But the long and the short of it is it seems like this is a fiduciary that gets a hold of the business, looks at like what's valuable, what what you know, how we should package this up to be sold, who the potential buyers would be, and manages this process as, as a third party. Um, it obviously doesn't feel great. Uh, for the workers that I'm talking to, mm-hmm. um, they're, you know, as you know, Brace, you worked there. Like these, oh, yeah. a lot of these people really fucking love anchor, like as like an institution, um, even though they weren't happy with management and weren't happy with their bosses or whatever, it's very important to them. Um, it's important to the city, I would argue. And, and to some extent, the country, um, and, they're mounting a last ditch bid to, you know, try to scrape up the funds to make a uh, make an offer for Anchor to try to buy it and run it as a worker co-op. I think it's a real long shot. Um, I think, you know, they know that I think that I think they think that it's a real long shot. I also give them an enormous amount of credit for trying just because like, I don't know, man, like. If, when this fucking happens and it happens all over the place, whether it's private equity behind the wheel or a foreign corporation or just a slash and burn publicly traded corporation, mm. um, this type of collateral damage happens all the time. And we're all told that we just have to accept it as like a byproduct of, you know, progress. And um, these workers are at least going to try to try to give it a fight. And I give them all the credit in the world for it. Yeah, yeah, I've been I've been talking to them too, and yeah, I agree. Like, I think they also they know it's a long shot, but I mean, it's it's the only shot. You miss a hundred percent of the shots you don't take, right? That's exactly. what they say. Um, and you know, and, and credit for trying. I know they are they are really trying and talking to to quite a few people who might be able to help them out with that. Um, any relevant stuff we have towards that, we'll also put in the show notes here. Uh, I know a lot of people have asked how they can get involved. I don't think it's at that stage. At right now or anything? It's close, but not yet. Yeah. yeah. So the latest update is that they now have uh, a couple different nonprofit groups that they're working with who specialize in setting up worker co-ops yeah. and also like raising public. I think one of them is called like public equity, basically like crowdfunding, but for this specific type of business. Um, uh, one of my sources at Anchor Brewing Union says they're going to be releasing all the information through Twitter or whatever the fuck it's called now that it has <laughs> x.com <laughs> x.com xvideos.com mm-hmm. uh, yeah but um, so you know stay tuned there and also obviously I'll be reporting on it as well and it sounds like it'll be in the liner notes uh, of this episode but yeah I mean it, it's uh, it's a shitty situation it's one that I think you know uh, I don't like writing about this stuff but it's also one of those things that like this is going to keep happening in this country because we have you know a system that basically encourages it this type of mm-hmm. consil- consolidatory uh, practice where you extract what you can if it if it works out great you funnel it upwards if it doesn't no big deal you know harvest the tax loss uh, and move on to the next mm-hmm. one and um, that's 
doesn't, it's never fun for all the workers and the customers and the communities that rely on it. But when it's something as special as Anchor, which has just basically an indelible uh, position in the American mm-hmm. you know, culinary canon, the American business canon, whatever, um, and is synonymous with, with San Francisco for a century and a half, I think it's particularly tough to swallow. Well, we'll definitely be following. We, I think that our listeners will be following. And a great way to follow is to follow you, Dave. So, this has been such a pleasure to have you on. Thank Yeah, thank you so much. This has been, I mean, a long time coming, Dave. I, pr- I appreciate you so much for having me. I know this is, your listeners will probably laugh at this, but uh, uh, one caveat I just do want to insert, <laughs> because I'm scared of getting sued, even if you guys aren't, mm-hmm. is that the company, uh, Coors, has always denied that it was uh, trying to weed out homosexuals with the polygraph test. Uh-huh. There are sworn there are sworn affidavits uh, from many workers saying that that's exactly what they were doing. Um, the company has always denied it. Uh, I don't think that they are actually fair, that litigious about this at this point. Um, I just forgot to insert the caveat. I know this makes me sound like a big pussy. No, 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 no. <laughs> we, are, we are well behind this. We also would never insinuate that and uh i think that's just that's just what some have said about it in sworn affidavits in no, sworn no affidavits yeah, people yeah, have yeah. said that we haven't said that we are again like everything we on the show it's all alleged um by other people and we're just reporting on it with a neutral that's just what it says you know yeah. I, a sworn affidavit is a sworn affidavit you know i'm not giving it um <laughs> You can follow Jay. No, 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 no. Believe me, we are, we are. There's been many things we have not done on the show due to um, fear of lawsuit. Uh, <laughs> but perhaps let me. If I just got to get my law license, and then we can start just suing everybody. Oh yeah, I look forward <laughs> to can, this. That's. I, I I'm just, also. I'm looking forward to you figuring out it's not called a law license. Law license. Yeah. Li- <laughs> oh, what's it? Oh, what? Uh, the bar. People don't want to see the. Uh, Speaking of the bar, David Fonte. Hey, oh, there we go. Dave is the editor of Fingers, a newsletter about drinking in America. Fantastic newsletter. Give it a follow. We'll do a little subscription to it. Uh, he's been, you know, longtime beer writer, actually just beverage writer in general. And let me ask you this before we finish. Best and worst beer in America. Ooh. Fuck, man. I mean, worst beer, obviously. We already talked about it. Coors Light. Coors worst Light. beer in America. Coors Light. Best beer in America is, I don't know, man, the one I'm drinking. Uh, I don't really, I'm not a critic. I don't review beer. I don't really care that much about the beer industry, which is part of the reason I report on it because <laughs> it's, uh, it's a lot easier when you don't give a shit about it. I drink a lot of beer, and uh, that's the best one is the one that's available and cold. As Liz, long as it's not Coors Light. Liz loves Shock Top. Actually, Liz loves Voodoo Ranger IPA. Liz, no. It's crazy. I you actually think, don't know the last you, time I drank a beer. You think you see a motherfucking... I think I was probably there the last time you drank beer. You think you see a water bottle on Liz's desk right now? There is. It is a water bottle, but there is a full glass bottle of Voodoo <laughs> Ranger IPA in there. And she says she doesn't like the taste. She doesn't like the way it makes her feel, but she likes the aesthetic. Yeah, it, it matches my my little dice tattoos. It does, um, and that's plural. And for me, um, I think beer should be illegal. Again, Dave, thank you very much <laughs> for joining us. And uh, you know what? We'll see you at the motherfucking bar. 
I'm drunk. It's good to be back. It's good to be back. I know. And then, ladies and gentlemen, don't you don't you worry. We are back. No matter how sick I get. <laughs> no matter how much Coors Light you drink. No matter how much Coors Light I drink. Coors Light, you should be, if you're sober, you should be able to have like a Coors Light. Because it's like, you're not going to get drunk. That shit that. is nasty. You're not going to get, when's the last time you think you had one? A Coors Light? A Coors Light. When's the last time you think you had a Coors Light? Oh, shit. I don't even know. When was the last time, Young Chomsky, you don't know? I couldn't tell you. College? Oh, yeah, a barbecue when I was 22 or something. You guys are crazy, dude. I don't because even also no any sports thing, I'll have a Budweiser mm-hmm. as a like... A nod to our heroes. Yeah, because, well, it's just like Budweiser hot dog. That's the Budweiser diet when you go, go to a, you know, yeah. athletic sporting event. Well, on that note, I am going to drink, oh, if they come up with a crazy non-alcoholic drink, maybe a Hoppy Coors refresher. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> my name is the drinker, the thinker, the stinker. Uh, no, wait, drinking, stinking, and doing no thinking. That's what I used to say. When I was going out that's there. That's awful. That's what you do. What was I had a couple other ones. Drink, drinking and stinking was the one I would I'd people yeah. would ask me what mm-hmm. I was doing. It's always good when you can figure out a rhyme. Doing no thinking. You never said that? No. No. That's uh certainly spent a lot of years of my life doing that. Here's you know what? Here's to the trailblazers. Here's to the badasses. <laughs> Here's to the innovators. Here's to the salt of the earth. After a long day. Uh, as a project manager, when I get off and I hit the fucking uh, that like home workout uh, weightlifting thing in oh. the mirror, oh yeah, for the 30, mirror. I hit that fucking. I go beast mode on that thing for thirty minutes. I open up my Hello Fresh. I fucking cook that. I Facetime the boys and I open up a fucking can of Coors and I say, "God bless you and God bless America and God bless Elvira." All right, I'm Liz. My name is Mistress of the Night, Brace Belden. We have with us here, producer Young Chomsky, and the podcast is... It's Drone On. We'll see you next time. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Jeffrey Epstein. Jeffrey Epstein. Jeffrey Epstein.